Well, you know, the way we use listening is not actually linked to the hearing. Listening is just abiding to the fact. Like a child, you put a two-year-old child in a room, and he's listening to the sound, but to what he sees, to the smell, and to the cold, and to the... So listening is not something we do, it's listening is what we are. When you go out in the street, if it's cold or warm, you make an effort to, you, to close your jacket, to remove your jacket. Uh, listening is the very core of life, so it, is, it has no... It doesn't need anything, but it is true that we are so much cut, generally, from that listening, because we are caught in thinking, and like when you see people walking in the street, uh, you can see that nobody is looking, nobody is listening, people are, are thinking. Uh, I don't mean even the, the, the new decadent one while looking at the phone, but even before the absurd creation of the phone, people in the street, you could see some, they walk, they love, some, they love, they cry, some, they walk, they sing. They're not, they're not present. Welcome back to the Sounds of Sand podcast. My name is Michael Riley. And today I'm in conversation with Eric Barre. Without diploma or culture, Eric Barre has no special competence. Touched by the non-dual tradition through Jean Klein's teaching, he suggests that one turn towards listening, free of any notion of gain, nothing taught, no teacher, meeting for the joy of being nothing. And today is a fascinating conversation where we talk about his early days and connection with Jean Klein, his thoughts on gurus and teachers and the path of Kashmir Shaivism, and his book, Let the Moon Be Free, Conversations on Kashmiri Tantra, which was translated by Science and Non-Duality's own Jean-Ric Meller. And you can find links to that in the show notes to discover more about Eric and his fascinating path and philosophy. All today on the Sounds of Sand podcast presented by Science and Non-Duality. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. Okay, I'm here with Eric Barre for the Sounds of Sand podcast. Thank you for being connecting with Sand once again, Eric. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So we have a lot of articles and videos of your uh, your dialogues and writings on the on the website. So there's uh, a lot of ways people can can connect with what you're what you've offered at Sand and elsewhere over the years. So as a way to begin and to orient perhaps listeners who aren't as familiar with your work, would you mind tracing your lineage and evolution along the spiritual path for us? Oh, actually, it's very, it would be very fast because there's no lineage and uh, no spiritual path. I just had the chance to meet uh, an exceptional man called Jean Klein and... Uh, I would say that's it. Uh, nothing else have had any importance in my life but for that meeting. And I had the chance to listen to him uh, without understanding it, of course, for 30 years. But even if you don't understand somebody on that level, you're uh, due to be touched despite your own limitation. And so uh, living with uh, this... Uh, this light was my life uh, up to now. I met him when I was 16, and now I'm more or less dying at 70 something. Yeah. So there's nothing else in my life but that. Yeah. The rest is of very little importance. Uh, don't think you will even accept the idea of uh, uh, lineage. Mm-hmm. For him, the tradition is without any, anything personal. So, 
what he what he gave us came from his teacher and he came the teacher of the teacher. So there's no personal entity in line actually teaching is there. And the rest is really kind of romanticism. At least he was conveying this um, resonance with us and uh, that's what we try to do. And was your initial meeting with Jean Klein, was it like a, like a bolt of lightning, like you said, okay, this is it, or was it more gradual? Um, no, I was, I was too uh, superficial to be able to to feel something like that. No, I met him and I, um, I'm not going to tell my story, it's really relevant, but I met him when I was 16, I was in a meeting in Nice, in France, south of France. I really didn't like what I was seeing because at the time I was very anarchist and I met this man who looked like very rich, very elegant, very well-dressed, everything I could not stand, mm-hmm. very um, educated. And I asked two questions. He put me down very rightly about the two questions. But at the end of the meeting, it was, it was unknown at that period. We were maybe 10, 12 in the room. He said, um, forget everything we said. If it is of any concern for you, when you will cross the street in some time, he will come back to you. And so I left, really unimpressed. I spent a week sleeping on the beach in Nice, and literally crossing the street one week later, something came very, very strongly to me that I had to see this man again. And so it was the beginning of a long uh, friendship. Hmm. If you remember, could you describe a bit what that, realization crossing the street felt like or what what it was? No, it was just that uh, I'm going to see this man again, you know. And slowly, okay. slowly, yeah. Uh, it was some important for me was that it, maybe a few months later he came to Marseille where I was living. Mm-hmm. And at the time I was doing yoga with a very extraordinary woman, an old woman that a very high, uh, I would say, spiritual experience. Actually, it was this woman who sort of, one way or another, introduced me to Jean. And so he gave the talks, and I slept the whole talks. First, I would not understand anything he would say, because he, it was a very strange way to present things, and I was totally unable to understand his, his uh, semantic. But when, I, when the meeting stopped, I went to see her, I said, what do you think? And he said, and she told me, this man is beyond time and space, and coming from her, uh, that had an impact on me. Uh, and then slowly, slowly, uh, something uh, unraveled with, with him. Beautiful. And then d- d- you developed a student-teacher relationship with him at that point? Uh, it, took, it took time. It took time. Yeah. Uh, during the same time in Marseille, uh, the men were organizing a meeting, uh, inviting. I was living with my parents, I was 16. And so uh, we had uh, lunch together, and, I'll, and he asked his friend, asked Jean, uh, talking about me, he said, my, uh, Our friend is going to go to India. Mm. Can you give him some advice? And so I was expecting some very spiritual advice. And he looked at me in a very cold way, and he said, uh, Work on your English. <laughs> I really didn't like the, <laughs> this advice. And then I look at this man, and for the, f- yeah, for the first time in my life, I was totally afraid. Mm. I look at him. And up to that, my life, I was very much into physical action. And I used to drink a lot and to fight a lot in the street. And I always had the feeling that uh, I could not respect any authority. And... Uh, Anybody I could frighten physically, I could not respect. Mm. I was not stupid enough to think that I was stronger than anybody else. But I was always told myself, even if a man is stronger than me, if I kill his daughter, if I rape his wife, if I burn his house, this man may break. And I could not respect somebody who could break. And when I look at Jean, for the first time, I had this, and of course I'm not saying it is right or not, but I had this very strong feeling that I could not break this, break this man, not physically, but as, as so, I felt in him something I could not touch. Whatever I would do to him, 
I felt it was something uh, not negotiable. And that the first time I buy in certain way to authority. It was fear. Uh, I could not uh, respect somebody which uh, could create fear in him. And, and so he created fear in me. And so that was my uh, experience of surrendering to him. Mm. That was sort of a psychopathic case. So, <laughs> but uh, it was felt like that. Do you feel that that was a a way to experience surrender? This idea of the integrity and strength of your teacher that as an unbreakable force that you needed to devote yourself no, to. I really think it was my own, my own pathology, mm-hmm. uh, for whatever reason, and I could not respect. Uh, I always had the feeling that when somebody was teaching, they were, it was always fake. Right. I could not respect my parents, I could not respect uh, the government, I could not respect spiritual teacher because I, I always feel when they say that, but, you know, the, they talk the talk, but you, you walk the walk. And, um, and Jordi is the first person I had this, uh, this feeling that, uh, yes, he was really what he was saying. I would not understand, of course, anything what he was saying, but uh, for me it was genuine. I had already that experience with my yoga teacher was an exceptional woman, but with him it was uh, beyond that. But it took time. You know, with Jean, it took time to be closer to him and to become a student, and uh, it took years, actually. But I was very young and very mature, and um, so it sort of began like that. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to ask about was the importance of the relationship, especially in, in Kashmir Shaivism, of the importance of the guru and what qualities one should look for when they're finding a guru or a teacher or a mentor, whatever terminology we want to use, but someone who, who's our, our guide, who we surrender to as the... Well, actually, you cannot uh, judge a guru because you have to be a guru yourself. So mm-hmm. it's actually... Uh, you're always living in daydreaming when you try to understand is the guru is the right guru, the wrong guru, because we cannot judge. We cannot judge what is beyond our abilities. So, uh, for me, Kashmir Sheva is sort of foreign for me because I, I feel it is a religious teaching in which I have high respect for that and I study it up to a certain point. But I think most people, uh, you know, cannot study that. It's too complex. And but but what is important is to become aware of, of our own problematic, our own our own defense and uh, and uh, limits. And uh, you know, the teaching must go to the fact, not to the theory. So in Kashmir Shivism, of course, as in all Indian tradition, guru is extremely important. But that's an Indian tradition. Like in India, if you study Sanskrit, if you study martial arts, you, if you study whatever, you, music, you have to, when you enter the room, you, you lie and then touch the feet of your guru. And it's India. Because in India, people realize that when you touch the feet of your guru, when you lie down in front of him, you don't actually lie down in front of the guru, you lie down in front of the truth, which the guru incarnate. Mm-hmm. So here, People don't under, will not understand that. So I think here, uh, they don't need a guru, and they think they just need of resonance with some teaching, like with some music. You resonate with that or that music. If some music touch you more than others, some teaching touch you more than others, you must be free of the fantasy of uh, guruness. And actually, when John Klein uh, was teaching in Europe, uh, he was sort of formal in a way. And so in the, in the public talks, everybody would, would call him sir or master or doctor. But when he went to California, the first time I remember he came back and we spent time together. And he said, you know, Eric in California, he's not enough to be a guru. You have to be a friend too. Mm. Other people will not understand. Mm-hmm. Like for example, in France, nobody will ever touch John Klein physically. Mm-hmm. You know, you or something around him. But in California, everybody will take his arm and you know go around him and work together. And, and he plays the game very well. It was 
it was very strange for French people who who, who, uh, who went to see him in California because we were used to this kind of uh, seemingly friendship and looseness. Uh, but for him, of course, it was the same. And I think, uh, you know, in Europe, we always were about 30 years uh, late from California, always. <laughs> so now in Europe, it become like that. And I think it is it is nice because uh, as much in India, you know, when you study the war in India, you first you don't pay anything. The teaching is always free. Mm -hmm. But of course, you clean the house of the guru, you bake for him, you cook for him. Uh, and when you leave the teaching, uh, you offer one cow, two cows, maybe. You know, but we're not in India. Mm -hmm. So uh, I respect very much Indian tradition, which I've based for many years in it. But uh, India is India, and we don't live in India. So I think here we must be very more simple and functional and so if you meet somebody which you feel a kind of, uh, I think for me the most important is that you feel that the, what the person say, he really feel it. I'm not saying he knows it, because, but he, at least he feel it. He has a preconception. He may not be totally realized because there's no goal at John Klein or the Maharaj or on the market. Um, Jane, you know what I mean. But um, at least the person must have this inner feeling and and must live up to a certain point accordingly to this feeling. And of course, who, who are we to judge? That's always an interpretation. But I think for me, the main thing is the resonance. You must like your teacher, not personally, but you must, uh, if you don't like your teacher, you must find another one. <laughs> because it's kind of friendship which, um, and it's true of anything. If you learn tennis, if you learn boxing, you must like your teacher. If you learn Sanskrit, you must like your teacher. That doesn't mean you like his, his psychopathic level, but you must like something in him because we, we, we learn from uh, uh, mimetism. And so you must want to become like him, not in an outside way, not in a formal way, but in a, there's something like that. So when you play tennis with a teacher, you, for a long time you're going to play like the teacher. Later on, you find your own way to play. And when you study with a teacher, you're going to copy him, and that's not wrong because you learn by copying. Mm -hmm. And later on, when you assimilate the teaching, when of course you find your own way, which is more genuine for you. But at the beginning, you must accept that copying is the only way to learn. And it's not a formal copying, it's not that one should try to be like Jean Klein. But uh, that means you must have an emulsion, you must have a stimulation. Uh, of the teaching. So I think this stimulation is, for me is a recognition of the... And I'm not saying guru, because guru in India is very specific, but let's say of somebody who, can, who may help you uh, in, in your uh, discovery. So the person must have... You must feel that the person who teach you must have encountered more or less the same problematic and needs to find a way to, um, to live uh, lightly with it. So you ask him, uh, well, uh, you had fear, and the teacher said yes, and he said now, and the teacher said no, no, I don't, uh, I don't feel that. Uh, so you said, uh, well, how do you do it? And so he's giving you his example, which uh, work up to a certain point for you, because we're all the same, but we're all different. And so uh, that's it. But uh, I'm not resonating very much with the idea of finding a guru like we have in India. Mm -hmm. because um, it's very Californian Californian like gurus and, um, but I don't follow more this session Thinking of this word guru as just a placeholder for the idea of uh, 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 someone that you develop a personal relationship with, 
I feel that a lot of people on the spiritual path these days are, because there's so much information online, there's so many videos we can watch and books we can read and articles and podcasts, et cetera. Um, do you feel it's almost essential that someone develops a face-to-face relationship with a teacher? Because it sounds to me like what you're speaking about with your relationship with Jean Klein is that it was indeed his words, you know, the things he was saying, but also do you think it was the the way he carried himself and the energy used the word resonance? Well, honestly, the teaching is in the life of the teacher. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. uh, what he says is very, very secondary. Yes. I mean, all the teachers say the same thing. You know, everybody now in <laughs> non-duality says the same thing. So, who cares what somebody says? You can read Ramana Maharshi and you read Krishna Menon and you can, if you're not stupid, yes, it's very easy to answer like them. But that doesn't make you a teacher. A teacher means somebody who has accepted to see his limitation, who accepted to see his, um, his weakness, who accepted to see his jealousy, who accepted to see his own fear, and who shall develop a way to encounter them in a, I would say, in a functional way. And so um, you can convey this uh, uh, this art of living uh, peacefully, and uh, which is the base of discovering what is essential. But for me, teachers do not transmit the essential. The essential is in yourself. Nobody can give it to you. That's why in India we give very often the example of the transmission of the teacher as two matches. One match is uh, light lighted, and one is not. And one of the matches uh, lighted come close to the other one that the light, but it's not a transmission. It is that the unlighted matches is has a potential, but it's not yet awakened. So it's not a transmission from one to the other. The lighted match doesn't give anything, but just its own uh, light sort of uh, reverberate in the student's light. Mm. And that was the main teaching of Jean Klein. When you will enter the room of Jean Klein, he would look at you, and he would see the beauty in you. And not physically, not mentally. He would see immediately all our fault, all our problematic, all our stupidity. But he would see uh, beyond that. So he would see what was essentially us, which was, of course, what was essentially is. Uh, this oneness actually was the teaching. Then how it conveys some structural teaching was, was really secondary. He was teaching a kind of body work, so we did body work, but he would have taught music and singing, we would have taught music and singing. It was really secondary. So the formal teaching was a, was a pretext, and Jean very often said that. He said, you know, when we were meeting in the seminar, he said, what we're going to do, what we're going to say is a pretext, actually, uh, what's happening is beyond uh, the reach of the mind, so we are here for the joy of being together, and what we do, we don't care, what we talk, we don't care, what we think, we don't care, what we do care, it's just uh, beingness, mm. which is stimulated by uh, being genuine in the moment, by not trying to achieve anything, by not trying to appropriate anything, by not trying even to understand anything, to, to remain in this aloofness of all uh, conclusion of all knowledge, of all certitude, was this uh, coming together, what was actually the main uh, teaching of Jean. Beautiful. Thank you for um, sharing that history of your relationship with Jean Klein. And just just uh, to stay in the past for one more question, uh, and so after those initial meetings and those initial years with him, did you see an evolutionary arc to your own practice, or was it more steady, like um, there was two moments important in my life with him. After ten years, I had sort of sort of understood the, understood the teaching, and then one day I realized I understood nothing. It was a very strong understanding. Uh, Twenty years later, uh, I had the feeling I understood the teaching, and then I realized I understood nothing. It was a very important moment. And then later on, I realized that actually there was nothing to understand, and so I gave up any fantasy of understanding his teaching, mm-hmm. which I think actually is not possible. Um, so it remained a uh, flower, uh, 
flavor, it remains the, the music, it remains the presence, but no, actually, I, I feel I have the same limitation as when I met him, I'm as stupid and I'm as arrogant and I'm as defensive, and I, I didn't see any change in me. The only thing I could say is that uh, I don't care. Mm -hmm. I really don't care uh, of my limitation. I really don't care being egotic. I really don't care having fear. I really don't uh, don't care being jealous. I really don't. I I don't care this emotional element. And when I met him, uh, it was very important for me. It was uh, I hated myself being like that. I hated myself being like that. Oh, I was I was praising myself being like that. This is the same thing. If you hate something in you, then you like something else. Uh, now I really don't care. I, I am like I am, and uh, uh, I give up any fantasy or any opinion on myself and on, on, uh, on anybody else. Uh, I will say that would change, but nothing else has changed. And so, when you when you uh, say I don't care, um, you're saying I don't care about the contents of my personality. Is that what you mean? Yes, I mean, I accept that I cannot be different than what I am. Mm -hmm. So when an emotion comes, when something comes, uh, I stop having the fantasy, oh, no, it's good, or oh, not good, I should be different, and I should, should, I should, I should not. No, I should, nothing, I should not, nothing. You know, what is there? Cannot be anything else than the ultimate. I may be able to see it or not, that's my problem. But... Uh, I stop pretending knowing what it is. I stop pretending understanding what's happening because we can't. Uh, when I said I understand something, I limit the immensity to my own stupidity. It's not, it's not an understanding, it's just a concept. Mm -hmm. So you give up in a way the, any uh, dynamic of conclusion, of understanding, and you, you, you become stupid. I mean, there's nothing I know, there's nothing we can know. You know, see, I need to know, and I need to know, maybe you going to tell me in the moment. You know, that, that's very simple. So the, the mechanism of understanding, I think, for me, the ultimate uh, problematic of the human mind, because there's nothing to understand. Beauty cannot be understood, love cannot be understood, and oneness cannot be understood, and what can be understood? When I said I understand something, I just mean I put a concept of it. I thought, oh, now I understand. I understand nothing. I put a name on it. But if I'm Buddhist, I put Buddhist name. If I'm Hindu, I put Hindu name. If I'm a Shaiva, I put Shaiva name. I can put a Christian name. I can put a fascist name. I can put a capitalist name. I put a name. Mm -hmm. I don't understand. So this um, was really the core of the teaching, actually. Mm. And do you feel like... Uh, do you feel as though you're in that space for most of your your day? So that you're in the space of um, no, no. I feel opposite. I feel uh, ninety nine percent in uh, in limitation, in, uh, yeah. in judgment, and in the, uh, and that's okay because I don't have any other way. Mm. I need to be different. I accept that the. Um, I said it, why? Because I have no choice. You know, when you're young, you think, oh, I'm going to transform myself, I'm yoga, I'm going to eat like that, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to do that, I'm going to read Tantra Loka, I'm going to study, I'm going to do this. And it's very sweet. But, you know, it's like a child wearing a Zorro mask and, uh, you know, thinking he's Zorro. When you come here at some point in life, uh, life is short, we're going to die today, tomorrow. There's no time to become anything. There's no time to appropriate anything. There's no time to understand anything. But there is time to totally give oneself to the moment. Mm -hmm. All the rest, for me, the fantasy. Mm -hmm. And the moment doesn't need any comment mm -hmm. about I should be, I should not be. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a kind of uh, challenge game to, to think. There's nothing to think in life. Life is nothing to do with thinking. But we spend all our day in thinking this, I should do that, I should not do that. Thinking is a curse. It's a beautiful curse. Uh, there is a role to play, but thinking that I should find what I look for in thinking is a really uh, 
des doubles visions. Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful perspective you're offering, although it's very it's very essential and simple, and I think a lot of people can identify with this. But I do, like, you know, most people are also stuck in thoughts. They're stuck in the judgments and the things that you said you spend 99% of your time in. But still, don't you feel that there is a perspective that you're able to say, okay, I'm in that. Like, there's a there's an identification with a an awareness, a witness that's able to recognize these things as not the primary <laughs> self. When you see, you, you're stuck, uh, the, you're not stuck. Right, but most people don't see that. <laughs> but you cannot not be stuck, because that thing, that, to think that is being stuck. Mm-hmm. Put it in a different way. You cannot be humble. To, mm-hmm. to say humble or to think I'm humble is arrogance. But the moment I see my arrogance, it is humility. But there is no room for anybody to be humble. The moment I will sing a member, that, that's arrogance. Right. No, it's a negative path, not in a psychological way, but in a way that I can never appropriate any positivity. So to see what I'm not is a revelation of what I am, but I cannot be what I am because then it would be a subject object relationship. So uh, to see my arrogance is humility, but it's not good to be humble. Otherwise, you'd be arrogant. So it's important to see that there's no room for appropriation. There's no, there's no room to become humble, like the Christian people who try to be more and more humble. It's just arrogance. Or people who want to be spiritual or realize or pure. Or, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's very sweet. And for me, it's like somebody who wants to wear, to become Zorro because he wears a mask of Zorro. And when you when you use the word appropriation, there are you saying like to um, pr- imitate what we think is someone else's yeah. behavior? In the sense, maybe it's, it's a bad word, word in English. I'm sorry. No, no. It's a I mean, in a way of uh, uh, making something out of it. You know, to appropriate the like a child, you wear the mask of the whole, and he thinks he's all. You know, so he just uh, identified with the, you know, so there's nothing to appropriate, and and there's nothing wrong there to appropriate because we have no choice. But the moment I see my appropriation, the moment I see uh, uh, I react as Eric, uh, there's something uh, free of the fact. But I cannot uh, not react as Eric. If I said I don't want to react, then it's in the fantasy. So you can only see. That is uh, wrong, but not in, wrong in a metaphysical way, not wrong in the moral way. You can only see what, what you are not. But what you, what we are is not something uh, we can experience in subject of relationships. So we can we cannot know it, we cannot feel it, we cannot think it, we cannot experience it because that's what we are. Everything we think and feel, experience, is uh, not what we are. We are it too, of course. But uh, in a certain way, uh, it, for a long time, it, it distracts us from, uh, from the core of the what is essential, which is the silence between two thoughts and two perceptions, the deep sleep. Mm-hmm. In the moment where there is no reference, when there is no uh, me and the other, you know. So this uh, the ultimate simplicity, because there is nothing more simple than not to do anything. But we are constantly doing something. Jean Klein used to say, uh, meditation is, uh, is just not to take the train. So not to take the train, you have nothing to do. Mm-hmm. But we are constantly taking the train, mentally. We are constantly doing, doing, doing. And then one day you realize that what is important is not what you do, but what you are. But as long as you have this kind of inner fulfilling of that, you constantly looking, what shall I do? What is better for me? Shall I do this? Shall I do that? Is it better to become Buddhist, to be a Shiva, to, to be vegetarian, to, to, to be a Brahmacharya, to sleep with everybody? What is the best? Which is a, actually meaning what is the best for me? But as there is no me, as me is a fantasy, it is a ridiculous question. But I spend my life asking myself this question, what is the best for me? What shall I do? 
how to realize it means nothing. It means nothing. Not what I do, what is important, it's what I am. So we're constantly forgetting that, and so we, when I don't have this full feeling of what I am, I'm looking for myself in doing. So I become a Buddhist, I become Shiva, I become I do yoga, I become this, I listen to this great teacher with a long beard, and I uh, go to India, and I, and I do this, I do this. I, I, what I do is irrelevant. What I think is irrelevant, what I sleep with is irrelevant, what I eat is irrelevant. The only thing important is what I, what I am. But I constantly deny this evidence in looking myself in what I do. That's a very important line to uh, resonate with. The only question people ask is, what should I do? Right. It's the, first, it's the first question everyone asks you. What do you do? It was the last one, but there's no answer because the question is, stop trying to do something. What you are is not the result of doing. Go back to yourself. What you do is a prolongation of yourself, but uh, you never find yourself in what you do, in what you think, in what you feel, what you experience, and take the best drugs. You can do the highest yoga, you can become an asset, you can do... It is irrelevant, because in every night in deep sleep, you give up all that to be nothing, that's the core of life. Deep sleep is a... The so approach of deep sleep is very important in our, in our resonance. The importance of deep but, sleep. Yes, because you may have the best lover after two days, what you want, now you want to sleep. You may have an incredible car after two days, what you want, you want to sleep. You may have a pile of gold, what you want to feel today, you want to sleep. It's more important. The deep sleep is being nothing. Uh, and that ultimate ecstasy in the night when you have the chance to sleep alone, and in the night you you give yourself to nothingness and you're really going, really going deep in it. I mean, you you go to sleep to die tomorrow. I don't know, maybe the Russian will have some atomic bomb and it's not tomorrow. I don't care of tomorrow. Now. You go to sleep now, it's finished. I give up my wife, my child, my body, my past, my future, my fantasy. The beauty of sleep is giving up everything. And there's a want of ecstasy of letting go. Mm. And then if one can do it intensely, sometime in the morning before the, the body wake up, before the mind wake up and try the world, sometimes there's a kind of knowing, but without knowing it. A bit like in a dream, sometimes in a dream... Uh, uh, you know there is somebody in the in the other room. You don't know who you know it, but you know it. Mm-hmm. And then the same way sometimes you may have in the morning that you you know yourself before the body wake up, before the mind wake up. You don't know who you know it. It's not it's, it's very difficult to convey it if you're not a poet. Um, and then the body wake up and mind wake up. <laughs> this is fulfilling. But that due to going to sleep in the deep sleep in a very intimate way, which is a big part of our teaching, actually. else about deep sleep or sleep in general what was coming to me when you were talking earlier was the idea of lucid dreaming and you know i think people practice lucid dreaming and they're interested in this as a as some sort of um, tool to better understand the self but it's an interesting thing because it's like once you start lucid dreaming you're almost stopping dreaming stopping that automatic space of images and thoughts that that surrendering to the flow of the unconscious mind creating these stories that we're in you know dreaming and waking is the same when you dream if you crocodile eat your legs it's the same experience that in what you call the waking state it's only after you said it was a dream mm-hmm. but during the dream it was a waking state so for us we never interfere with dream on the contrary because in a way in the dream you cannot shake anymore like I mean uh, Let's say you're afraid of black cat. Uh, maybe you do yoga, you whatever you do, and 
Maybe in the daily life, you come to a point that you're not afraid anymore of a black cat. But if in dreams, you dream you're afraid of a black cat, I mean, you're still afraid. On the contrary, you're afraid of a black cat, you do some therapy, whatever, uh, you're still afraid of a black cat in waking state. But in the dream, you see a black cat, you're not afraid. That means slowly, the waking state, you, be, you won't be afraid anymore. Because the dream is closer, because you cannot pretend in dream. Waking state, you can pretend to be a guru, you can pretend you're not afraid of anything. But in dream state, uh, your ability are different. So for us, dream state is closer to truth than waking state. So we never interfere with it. We listen to it with that interpretation, with the feeling that when we wake up from a dream, we kind of uh, whole body is still uh, vibrating with the dream, so we let it, we live with it. But we never try to uh, uh, dreaming state consciously. It, it makes no sense. I respect it. It is in the tradition. It is in the Indian tradition. So I have no problem, no quarrel with that. But we don't resonate with that. For us, uh, dreaming uh, must be like totally free of any um, artifice. And in France, of course, we have two words which we don't have in English. We have uh, rêve and we have songe. Songe is a, um, it's a dream, but more uh, subtle, but it's very difficult to convey the meaning. Mm-hmm. And this song, the dream is personal. I mean, the dream, generally, you, you cannot rape your neighbor in the daily life, so you rape her in, in dream, or you cannot kill the husband, so you do it in dream. Uh, so it's a prolongation of the waking state. But the song in French, I think in Spanish, they have another word too. Mm-hmm. It conveys, it doesn't come from you. The kind of uh, revelation, and so the teaching. The moment you really engage, uh, not psychologically but from the heart, in a tradition, you, you're going to dream about it, and that's the sign. Like if you sleep with a woman or with a man for certain time, if you don't dream of your lover. That means the relation is not that deep. Uh, the same thing of everything. If you do martial art, if you don't dream about how to fighting. You're not really into it. When you're really into it, you dream about it. You can receive teaching in dream. And in yoga and in the, what we discussed today, uh, it is the same thing. So, so understanding in dream actually is more important than understanding in the waking state because in waking state you can push it in a certain way. Like you take some ayahuasca, you take some drug, and you, yes, you understood. But one week later, you sleep, your wife sleeps with a neighbor. And, understanding is very little but um, in uh, in dream the understanding comes generally first in dream and then you will eventually unravel in waking state so for a dream is very sacred we don't uh, we don't touch the dreams mm. yeah I had a teacher once who said uh, a dream dream practice teacher he said dreams dreams don't lie basically that Everything that happens in the dream is true because it's present. And uh, you were mentioning the energetic resonances of dreams in the body, and I think that's a lovely gateway to discuss the body because you know uh, science and non-duality often were focused on concepts, especially in this podcast format, uh, the conceptual mind, the the theories and practices. But uh, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the body and the importance of the body on. Well, uh, the first thing is to see that body and mind are just two words for the same thing. Mm. But for semantic, our language do not allow us another way. So sometimes we, we talk about the physical effect uh, on the mind, sometimes we talk about the somatic effect on the body, but actually there is no effect from one to the other because there is only one, either two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about the concept, we said it is a mind, we talk about the percept, it is a body. But it's very superficial formulation because actually a concept is a perception because you feel the concept. And actually the perception is a concept. The moment you said it's a perception, it is a concept in the mind. So perception and concept are two words. We talk about the same thing in different ways. And again, with our limited mind, we don't allow us, uh, at least in the modern language, in Sanskrit, in Chinese, in Arabic, or Persian, different, maybe different, 
they are more subtle words, but in our very limited language semantic, uh, we talk about the physiological effect and somatic effect, and it's been nothing. But what we can realize is that more the body sensitivity come alive, more the thinking reduce. That means when you make love with a new girlfriend, uh, you don't think when you make love. You totally, after three months, maybe when you make love with her, you can think about something else. That means the love of reduced intensity of reduce. In moment of intensity, you don't think that's why when somebody has a nervous breakdown, you slap the person in one moment, the person keep quiet. Because you cannot feel the slap and think at the same time. So in all, I think, tradition, there's always an emphasis in the physical element. Mm-hmm. And even in a very religious teaching, you know, the, the monk of the, all the Christian church, they were spending uh, 18 hours doing gardening or doing cheese or doing wine or working. The monk of the Chan tradition in China, they were working the whole day long. Then there was sometimes there was some teaching of Wang Po and Wenang, Chen Wei. It was non-dual teaching, but before and after, they were in the field, cleaning. And So I think in all tradition, the physical element is very strong because when you do, when you give yourself to doing, uh, there's no doer, there's only doing. Mm. And so the, the mind had, the, had the, always a limited place in traditional teaching. Of course, when you, when you record the teaching, now you read Wang Po and you said uh, it's fantastic, yeah, but Wang Po's teaching was not what you read, it was what you read for people who work 18 hours in the field. Mm-hmm. So for 18 hours, they were not thinking about non-duality, they were actually one with what they were doing. And it's the truth all tradition that the Muslim people, that they do the dirk and the in India, we do yoga, whatever. Taoists, they do some kind of yoga too. The Jewish, they have this kind of a movement. And all tradition include the body. So it's only when we look only at the text of the tradition that it seems that it was very intellectual. And But it's not always the case. Like Ravana Maharshi, they were talk about the body, but that was sort of an exceptional thing even if it was advertising pranayama for some people. I will say this his power of being was enough to subdue the mind of people around him, and so they didn't need to do a gymnastic. But uh, I think in most teaching and in John's teaching, uh, the body work was not essential, and uh, not for everybody. Uh, if you're too old, there's no need to pretend you know, to be a yogi. Um, but it was part of the... It was not spiritual, and actually John never used the word yoga, he used the word uh, body work. Because he didn't want the word yoga, because already at the time of Jean, yoga was used in a very um, arrivist uh, point of view. People were doing yoga to become this, to become that, to be... Uh, uh, so Jean didn't like this uh, arrivist attitude. So he didn't never use the word yoga, he used so, the word body work. Sorry, what, what so, was the word you used? Rel- relevist? I didn't understand. Uh, body work. Yeah, I sorry, you used a word like re- relevist or something. I didn't understand. Uh, uh, said- no, use the word to uh, not to be in the arrivist uh, dimension of modern yoga. I've, I've, sorry, that's the word I didn't understand. Arrivist, I mean. Um, arrivist. Yes, yes, I'm sorry. Yes, that's okay. The, the, the idea of getting something. I see. Right. So it was very important for him that when we do body work, we, we do it for the sake of it, for the beauty of it, not because it will convey any benefits. It's just an art of being, like a musician playing music, not because it will give him anything, but he's a musician, a dancer dance, and we do body work because that's what we do. But it doesn't convey anything special. It is just uh, celebrating oneness, in one way, as a poet, kind of celebrating with words and an architect with a volume. So he didn't like the, the fantasy of spiritual achievement in, uh, in body work. Um, so but it was part of his, but not for everybody. Uh, some people uh, went to him and uh, they were open enough to directly, I would say, receive the teaching without going to the body work. 
But uh, most of us, uh, we, are, we are not very bright, we are not very uh, sensitive. So for us, body work was a big part of, uh, not the teaching, but a big part of uh, open up for the teaching. Body work makes you aware of your tension, your desire, your fear, and, and this awareness helps you to, to receive actually the, the, the teaching when the body is totally tense and when the mind is in obsession and in... Uh, Arrivism and in uh, looking for something and defending and uh, it's very difficult to, to, to listen to a teaching. So the body work helps to cool down the, this kind of mechanism and make you uh, simply bring you simply to a state of uh, very simple listening in which uh, you can uh, receive a teaching with no uh, in an effortless way. So body work for us is just a way to to be more open, to be more um, receptive. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and you mentioned listening, and I actually had a question about listening because I one of the things I loved uh, in reading the book "Let the Moon Be Free" and some of your other teachings is the way that you illuminate listening as this important spiritual practice in and of itself. And do you think there's something inherent in our ability to listen that, uh, you know, because we're such a visual species and we're often using visual metaphors and so much of our uh, life, especially with media, is, is, is fixated on the visual. Is, do you think there's something in the auditory and the listening that allows us to understand this well, teaching? You, well, you know, the way we use listening is not actually uh, linked to the hearing. Right. Listening just abiding to the fact. Like a child, you put a two-year-old child in a room and he's listening to the sound, but to what he sees, to the smell and to the cold. And to the... So listening is not something we do. It, listening is what we are. When you go out in the street, if it's cold or warm, you make an effort to, you, to close your jacket, to remove your jacket. Uh, listening is the very core of life. So it, is, it, has no, it doesn't need anything. But it is true that we are so much cut generally from that listening because we are caught in thinking and like when you see people walking in the street, uh, you can see that nobody is looking, nobody is listening, people are, are thinking. Uh, I don't mean even the, the, the new decadent one while looking at the phone, but even before the absurd creation of the phone, People in the street, you could see some, they walk, they love, some, they walk, they cry, some, they walk, they sing. They're not, they're not present. They, 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 if somebody falls, they, they will not see. They don't, they're not present, they're in thinking. So when we realize that we, we have been educated in a certain way to be like that, to be obsessed with our own thoughts, uh, body work sometimes is a very pedagogical tool to come back to a simple fact of uh, when I move my arm, I feel the resistance of the hair. When I bring back my arm, I feel the resistance and I and I feel the, the, the textile which, I, which is on my chest. And I, it is something very basic, which is like you go on the, when you walk on the sand uh, on the beach, you make no effort to feel it's hot. And then you, when you walk on the, in the snow you know, with the bare foot you make no effort to feel this cold it's very natural but uh, our society our education and so on made that this simple fact of feeling has been uh, reduced for many people and I'm not talking even about the next generation who spends his whole life looking uh, on the computer who don't mm -hmm. feel the warm because they have air conditioned who don't feel the warm because they are conditioned who don't want to feel anything they have a pain, they take a painkiller. So we're creating a society where nobody wants to feel anything. Mm. And, uh, well, the result will, uh, you know, will not be surprising. <laughs> but the, the art of life is feeling everything. One day, the, Jean was always accenting, he said, when you're cold, just wait a second. Then you put your coat. But just feel it. When you warm, wait a second to move your coat. Feel it. When you feel to drink, when you're thirsty, just Wait a second, feed the sense when you want. And it's very important. Not that we have to wait, but just to encounter the feeling. But in our society, immediately, 
Le pain water, mon Dieu, le pain avec le pils, le col, la poule de singhole, la worm, la poule de, de fanon. Uh, it's a bring away of life for me. You must, we live in feeling. It's important to be cold, it's important to be warm, it's important to have thirst, it's important to have uh, like a lack of food sometimes, it's important to be tired, it's important to. Yes, if it's too much, why not using a. Uh, modern tools, but not immediately. First, we must encounter the simple fate of, before deciding, you know, what should I do? We're not feeling it, you know, just uh, like somebody carries your hand and you, before seeing it's nice, it's not nice, you can shut up and just feel it uh, without creating a story about it. So that was a big part of Jean's teaching too. Yeah, beautiful. That's, I think, much needed advice in this day and age. I mean, our our smartphones, they're designed basically so we don't feel anything. So any, any moment of boredom can be filled instantly with some new information. It's, you know, it's terrible. I'm traveling a lot. And yesterday I was in Spain and in the airport, nobody looked. Mm. People are just looking at the phone. They want information. Yeah. They don't look the beauty of somebody, the ugliness of somebody, the strength of somebody, the, the, the lightness of somebody. The, the, they don't look. They don't smell. They don't hear the stupid music constantly, uh, like in the supermarket and so on. And uh, people are, are, are totally abused. So no, no silence. Yeah. No silence. It's terrible. Why? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know the music for airports by Brian Eno? Have you ever heard that piece of music? No. You, uh, so Brian Eno, he's like an ambient music producer. He made this piece of music in the '70s, I think, or '80s, and he was in the Cologne airport. And he said, "Yeah, it was the scene you're describing. Everyone, there's this really bad music playing, and everyone's distracted." And he said, "You know, the airport should be like a cathedral, you know, because we're." We're in this, you know, going on this, uh, you know, this tube of metal that's going to fly through the air. It could be the end of our lives. So he created this really majestic, uh, you know, very simple piano and and uh, mm. vo- vocal piece that should be played in in the airport. And he said also th- that the Cologne airport he was in already kind of looked like a cathedral. It had these big glass windows, but everything else on the ground, like the music and the stores and the shops, was very kind of non uh yeah non-transcendent so yeah it's a it's a nice piece of music to listen to um i wanted to ask uh you know since we're we are coming back to science and non-duality for this podcast about the let the moon be free the book that uh jean-rick melner a very important <laughs> behind the scenes person who kind of keeps science and non-duality running in many ways uh did a beautiful translation i really i i read it over the weekend and it's it is a fantastic translation when he Asked me to read it. I think I just comment on one little thing, which was very mild. It's, it's amazing, you know. He translated. Uh, honestly, it's an amazing translation. I think it's much better in English than in French. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because as what I love is the, the sort of poetic language and the metaphor that he was able to bring to life. Uh, yes. To find sort of the English way to say that, and it was. Uh, Yes, which is very, very difficult. Uh, I heard my books translated into Spanish and into Italian. Uh, I don't have this kind of quality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. So we'll have links to that book in the show notes. It's available through Science and Non-Duality. Mm. So you mentioned you're traveling now. Are you um, giving talks and dialogues? Uh, yes, but I never travel for pleasure. I uh, mm-hmm. Pleasure to stay sitting on my bed, <laughs> uh, but I do. Uh, yes, I was in Spain when, yesterday in the Basque country, and before I was in Italy. And uh, no, my life is to travel for the to convey the little I've felt of Jean's teaching. So, um, unfortunately, uh, very few of us are still on the market because. Uh, uh, Jean is dead, like maybe, I don't know, 25 years ago, something like that. And so um, I was one of the young ones. So uh, 
but most of the CIU students of Jean are gone for a long time. When I met Jean, there were some people who made the, who fought the first uh, World War. Mm. Uh, they were in the 80s. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so all these people, of, of course, are gone. So few of us remained um, around, so I think it's important to convey the little we have understood of, um, of him. Right. Cool. Well, thank you, Eric, for this chance to speak together and I hope, uh, hope it was thank nice you. for you. And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAND content, available exclusively to SAND members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify, and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.